Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, my Diva Nation, and welcome back to Diva Behavior, the podcast. I am your host, Molly Molshine, as always, and today we are talking about a truly iconic woman named Josephine Baker. Now, Josephine Baker, she got her start as an entertainer, but she was not content to just be the most famous person of the 1920s. She also was an anti-fascist queen. She became a spy in World War II and helped defeat the freaking Nazis. And then she went back to performing and also became a civil rights leader in the U.S. I mean, how do you even fit all that into one lifetime? I don't know. But to find out, I read the book Josephine Baker, The Hungry Heart written by Jean-Claude Baker, and discussed it with my guest. But we'll get to that in a minute. First, I just want to give you a little bit of the spark notes on Josephine Baker's life. So Josephine Baker was born in 1906. She had a really rough childhood. Her mom sent her to work for really terrible people, starting from when she was about eight years old, which was, you know, pretty standard back then. There was a lot of child labor going on in the U.S. less than 100 years ago. So she ended up getting married first at age 13 to a guy who was most likely in his 20s. She got married again at 15. She got married a few times, never really got divorced. It wasn't really her style. She just kind of racked up the husbands. And then by the time she was in her late teens, she was becoming successful as a dancer and singer and vaudevillian. When Josephine was 19, she was cast in a show in Paris. So she loaded up all her stuff, got on an ocean liner, and headed to Paris and when she started working there she almost immediately became this massive massive star she was huge in Paris and it was also a totally new lifestyle for her not just because she became one of the richest women in the world but also because France didn't have segregation which was really the law of the land in the U.S. at that point. Of course, she still dealt with plenty of racism in Europe, which we'll get into as the episode goes on, but she could at least go to the same businesses as everybody else. So Paris became her unofficial home. So everything was going really well for Josephine, and then World War II started, which kind of put an end to her career as an entertainer, at least for a little while. But she loved her adopted country so much that when the French resistance asked her if she would be willing to take on some work for them as a spy, she said, absolutely, I would die for this country. Let's go. So even though it was wartime, Josephine was still a massive celebrity, and she knew that she could use her celebrity for good because everybody's always thirsting after celebs. This is not a new thing. We like to think that our generation invented, you know, selfies with celebrities and everything like that, but people have always been obsessed with famous people. So Josephine knew that what she could do was hang out with Nazis and sort of hobnob with them and get all the deets about where they were going to be going next. She would get all this info about where the German troops were going and everything, and she would write it down on little slips of paper, and she would stick those slips of paper in her underwear because she knew she was such a big celebrity that no one would ever dare to strip search her. And she got away with it for pretty much the entire duration of the war. You know, at one point, some Nazi soldiers 
started to suspect that she was up to something. So they showed up at her chateau, thank you very much, and they tried to look for things, but she ended up charming them and getting them to leave. So after World War II ended, Josephine got all these awards from the French government. They recognized her for helping to stop the Nazis. And then as life sort of gradually returned to normal, she started performing again. And in the 50s and 60s in America, she came back and wanted to, you know, perform on her home turf, but she would be rejected from hotels and restaurants because she was black. And she was a war hero, okay? She literally helped stop the Nazis. And she was one of the most famous women in the universe at this time. She was already pretty much an icon, and they still wouldn't let her into places. And Josephine knew, you know, if this was happening to her, of course it was happening to other people who weren't famous. So she really made it her mission to integrate a lot of the bars and clubs around the U.S. She said, I'm not performing here unless the crowd is racially mixed and you are not going to segregate anymore. So of course this was really hard. She would get threats from the KKK. People would say horrible things to her. But she ended up making a really big difference in this way. And she became sort of a civil rights leader. You know, the day that Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech in 1963, Josephine Baker was one of the speakers who opened up for him. So as far as I'm concerned and as far as this podcast is concerned, Josephine Baker should be a household name. She should be, her face should be on currency. If not here, then at least in France, you know, the Euro, they could use some female faces on that thing. And in my chat today with my guest, we really barely even scratched the surface of her life and what she accomplished. So my guest and I decided to read this book, The Hungry Heart by Jean-Claude Baker, her son. And it's an amazing book. If anyone wants to know more about Josephine Baker, I think that is the best resource for getting so many interesting details about her life. It's just so dense and so full of information. So check that out. And also check out my guest. Her name is Francesca Lynn. So Francesca is a gender studies professor. She does stand-up comedy as well, and she's from Florida, but she lives in Richmond, Virginia. And she has a podcast called You're Making Me Hungry, where she and a friend talk about food and eating. I mean, what could be better? You can find her on Twitter and Instagram, at Francesca Lynn. And as always, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Molly Molshine. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave me a five-star review in the Apple Podcast app. If you have any questions or comments or anything, send it over to info at divabehavior.com. Please enjoy. Some people think diva's a bitch. Who's a diva to you? Would you say, are you one? I never said that. Diva behavior. Diva Behavior, the podcast. Okay, so I'm joined by Francesca Lynn today. Francesca, thank you so much for coming on. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to talking about this. Yeah. Me too. She's had enough go on in her life where she could be five different people and still be interesting as anything. There's the career in entertainment. There's her civil rights activism. There's her career as a spy for the French resistance, yeah. which is, you just hear that and you're like, how is it possible? Like what, how did you do this? Yeah. And, and even like reading the book though, cause it is written by like her son. 
the thing about it that like really struck me too is that I feel like in some ways like even he felt like he didn't really truly know her like there's like Mm -hmm. this kind of mysterious quality still to her that like I was like fascinated because I think even like I even like like memoirs that are like clearly ghost written because it's like how did they pick like what to show and what to not to with this like whoever the ghost writer was like that to me that's fascinating like like all of these things because I mean it's so detailed and it like goes and it goes in on like things that like I don't know if like I like I wouldn't want to know maybe necessarily things about like my mom's sex life but even then with this level of detail you feel like maybe like she was still like a mystery to him in some ways it's really interesting and I think another reason why she's so hard to pin down even by her son who he was her adopted son but she didn't adopt him until he was 20 so very um unorthodox arrangement they had I guess she was more of a mentor to him that's true yeah yeah she she wrote a lot of books of her own and she was a great writer she had Mm -hmm. such a way with words which is unreal considering how many other talents she had but in her other books, there was a lot of stretching of the truth. And <laughs> even on her marriage certificates, there was a lot of stretching oh, yeah. of, of the truth. Yeah. She was married about three three or four times. Yeah. And I, never yeah. got any divorces and had a different yeah. dad listed as her dad every, on every marriage certificate. Yeah. And she, yeah, there's things too, like that she would call like certain people people her father and also she was married to like two I thought it was interesting two of the different two of the husbands were both named Willie and I was like what is up with that like she was they married two different Willies like what happened and it's just yeah the divorce thing I was like oh okay uh Josephine you like didn't yeah you didn't get any divorces here since yeah. this <laughs> so let's talk about her early life a little bit because something that I'm really obsessed with talking about and I know that you as someone who teaches gender studies will probably have thoughts on this too is I'm really obsessed with the way that we use women as sort of bellwethers for morality and sexuality and women who dance in a provocative way are often held up as these terrible people like after the Super Bowl halftime show oh my gosh everyone was freaking out and panicking because of J-Lo and Shakira dancing. And I think the reason people justify that to themselves is they say, what if kids see it? And what if kids become corrupted by these overtly sexual women? And the problem that I always say with that is kids and well, not necessarily kids, but teenagers and adolescents are actually less sexually active at this point in history than they ever have been before. And dancing and music is only getting more and more overtly (laughs) sexual. And And you see this with Josephine Baker when she was married off to an adult at age 13, Mm -hmm. no one cared. No one was. And then when she dances in a banana skirt, it's like all hell breaks loose. That's a really good point and something that I was thinking about even because um, I think we've talked about. I also read, I read this, but then I also read Jessica Simpson's open book, um, like memoir and a masterpiece, which is a masterpiece. And so also a book that's like, why is this so long? This is such a long book. This book is like freaking like pages too yeah, yeah she held nothing back not at all which we we love but also a lot of that in the very early ages with her they she was someone who like developed early and had big boobs but was someone who was like very spiritually like into really believed her own christianity wanted to be this role model but like was like 
basically like sexual was sexually harassed and talked about as like this object at such an early age which is completely like not what she was even talking about and basically saying that it was oh my gosh like a pastor even said something to her like oh my god you're it's like it's blasphemous and it's just like this is the way her body was just is and she was a kid so it's yeah. interesting that we like are constantly like ascribing all of this like um I don't know this like this judgment on women's bodies when they're just existing even with someone like Josephine Baker yeah it was fine when she was someone's maybe thought of as belonging to someone else like someone's possession almost as like a kid but yeah. as soon as she started to assert any sort of independence of this it was like seen as something bad and it's yeah we can definitely make um connections to that with even like yeah the cardi b stuff that we're talking about now of this idea the song that's about like female pleasure and the video is like you know provocative and sexual but if you notice like there aren't any there aren't any men in that video too which i think has something oh to do God, with that I didn't even pick yeah up on that. there aren't any men in the video it seems like in some ways it's and a celebration of the video for wap which for wap which out. everyone yeah which has like broken the internet basically. So it's, it's been such a, it's, and there are not any men in it and it's women kind of asserting these things that they want and like talking about their own pleasure. I don't, I was really kind of surprised as, as provocative as it was, because even I was like a little like, Ooh, okay. Like um, this is like, they're going there with this, but it's not more, it's not any more vulgar than like, like Nicki Minaj's Anaconda that came out or something, but she's also like, they're singing about like their body parts rather than like, like a man's. And I'm like, I wonder if that is part of this issue. I um, think it is, yeah. yeah. Or even like the, you know, just lots of different like male artists or hip hop artists or even like rock artists saying things like that are like, there's innuendo maybe put into it, but, um, but also it's like, oh, they're singing about like their penises, y'all. They're talking about, like, I didn't remember anyone having any sort of objections to Kendrick Lamar in backseat, what is that, backseat freestyle? Backseat freestyle yeah, yeah, it says he wishes is, you know, is as big as the Eiffel Tower. It's like, what, like, yeah. <laughs> like, why is that maybe not as scrutinized in the same way? Right. That to me is fascinating. Yeah. And I think something else that Josephine Baker and Cardi B have in common and even Kendrick Lamar with the lyric that you just mentioned is there is this overt sexuality and there's also such a great sense of humor attached yeah, to it. Too. Yeah. It's like it's very sexy and it's very much trying to make a point about sexuality and it's also funny. Like they said in the book that she was a great clown and mm -hmm. There was actually some pushback from the critics when she was with her third husband, who she didn't actually marry, but his name was Pepito, and he was yeah. a fake count. He lied and said he was a count. <laughs> yeah. He lied and said she married him and became a countess, <laughs> and then everyone was like, wow, really? And they did some research, and it turned out she was lying, and she was like, oh, I was just kidding. But so <laughs> her husband, Pepito, or boyfriend, I guess, he became her manager, and of course... 
she everybody ascribed her success to him after she started to really blow up because when she moved to Paris, she became this gigantic star and she just got bigger and bigger. And along the way, she started dating Pepito and he became her manager and he sort of glommed onto her. But he one thing that he did do was he taught he hired a countess who didn't have enough money. I mean, was it Countess Luanne de Lesseps? Was it not? We will never Maybe. know. But that would be a good job for her. He hired a <laughs> countess to teach Josephine Baker how to be more of a lady. And the countess taught her different languages and stuff and taught her how to sit up properly. And one of the critiques at the time was she stopped being a great clown and became a lady. And they wondered if that was a bad move because there are so many ladies in the world and there's not that many great clowns. So I thought that was really interesting because, you know, Pepito was kind of a hustler. In his mind, he's like, okay, if we want to climb to the highest heights, we need to get a little bit of like a classy patina on the both of us. And it, but it doesn't seem to have hurt her, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah, that is really fascinating to kind of maybe think of. And also like how much of it was like a manufactured persona. I was also like looking at it because, to me, I'm like, oh my God, she's so beautiful. But she wasn't a typical beauty at the time. And even the other the other Black women that were working with her were, were very, very critical of her, especially early on. They were saying like, there is a part I haven't marked um, that they would like say you act and dance like a monkey. And also this idea that like Black people discriminated against each other, that she was considered mm-hmm. maybe too dark. And um, and then at and other not- times she was considered too light. Yeah, right? she was too, yeah. And then or considered like too light in other places. And it's just like, oh, it seems like someone, this idea of scrutiny, you can never like win. I was just so like enthralled with this idea that, um, that she was maybe aware of this idea that maybe she wasn't this classic beauty and she used her comedy and her own charm and her just the gravitas and feelings that she had. It seems like she was someone who could charm. Sounds like she could charm freaking anybody. That's amazing. And, and that, I mean, is so, is I think so singular and so fascinating to me. Yeah. She charmed Mussolini. Mussolini. There's like pictures with her like chilling with um who they called Uncle Fidel, like her rainbow children, like just chilling with Castro. Like yeah. it's, it's almost like, you know, that Forrest Gump kind of thing where it's like everyone, she sees everyone, which another, like I can't stop thinking now about this freaking Jessica Simpson book too. That's, a, that's how Jessica Simpson was for like the early 2000s. It's like, oh, she just knew everyone and met everyone. That's so and, true. Yeah. And it was just like, yeah. And, and Josephine Baker, she was like, everywhere. She was friends with Colette. She was talking to, you know, Pio Ray. She like, maybe, maybe she, she might've hooked up with Picasso. We don't really know. Like mm-hmm. all of these things. It's like, wow, like what a life lived. Yeah. She was also bisexual. Yes. And I don't know a ton about the history of bisexuality as a concept, but I know that it wasn't really considered, it wasn't talked about and there was no name for it at this point in time. Yeah. It was just kind of like some people would go with both genders and I it doesn't seem like she had any shame about that. It doesn't seem like she tried to hide it whatsoever. She may have had relationships with Frida Kahlo and Colette yeah. and a bunch of other famous women. She actually one of the ways she got one of her first roles on stage in New York was through her relationship with Clara Smith. Mhm. 
So yes, the, I the just found singer. that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I found oh that gosh. really interesting. And I think that um, maybe we have this conception of this idea of like bisexuality sometimes is like something new or something that like no one really, no one really experiences. And that like, that was not the case. Right. But also this idea too, that I think things that women did with other women were maybe sometimes thought of as being in a separate sphere. If you had like a level of discretion, it was like, maybe not like considered socially acceptable everywhere, but like there's definitely a different vibe that was going on like within the 20s and 30s. And then kind of um, even not just in the US, but everywhere else, but also we can think of in the US has been a time where things start to crack down on queer spaces and queer people in general. Mm -hmm. There starts to be things like raids and bars and things. But before that, there was maybe some like, there was some more wiggle room that we can think of. And within the jazz aids, there were certainly lots of other uh, like queer people that became quite famous, not just like Claire Smith and, um, and like um, Josephine, but also people like Gladys Bentley, who is like a, a, a black jazz singer and sang very openly about being like, you know, what they would call a bull dagger at the time. So like wow. being a lesbian. Yeah. And just like sing these body songs about like, you know, like, I'm going to get your, like, I'm going to get your woman. I'm going to take your woman from, from you, man. And like songs like that. And she was amazing. So these people like existed and they, um, I mean, not all, they weren't always able to like, you know, live completely out loud, but it was more of a culture than I think sometimes people think of. We think of now as being the time where we're the most progressive and we're living the most out loud. And that's maybe kind of a historical yeah yeah definitely I really loved there was a quick anecdote in there about a love triangle between Josephine Baker and the Prince of Wales at the time Edward the and I should know this because I do a lot of royal research <laughs> but I always forget what number he was he's the one who married Edward the sixth or something he married Wallace Simpson and abdicated the throne but before yes. he met Wallace Simpson I'm just gonna read this passage so that I don't get it wrong so he would drum he would pay them to let him drum in the club which I love that he paid them to let him he was like look I get it I'm a rich boy who sucks at drumming I'm gonna give you money so that you'll let me get on stage like honestly respect that but it said he was grieving over the marriage of his cousin Mountbatten who with whom he was infatuated Mountbatten was a guy and his cousin. So he was having like a relationship with his cousin who was a guy. But once he met Claude Hopkins, he perked up. Claude claimed the prince was mad about him. It's funny to think of Josephine and his royal highness waging a silent war for Claude's favors. So Josephine and the prince of Wales were battling over this guy, Claude Hopkins. I just love that. I think it's so funny. Oh and, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And it is just, you're right. It is a historical, the way that we think anyone who came before us must have been more closed minded and more conservative, but it's clearly just not the case, especially in the case of Josephine Baker. Where do you think she got her freedom of just living her life literally however she wanted? I have no freaking idea. It is like amazing to kind of think of like this little girl that was like, you know, had like this abusive upbringing and had to live in like, like terrible conditions for a while, finding like kind of a way, a way out and being able to do all of this. But in a way, it's kind of like a lot of super celebrities that we see that are able to do this even today, like now how that happens. I think maybe sometimes if 
if these horrible things happen, you can kind of figure out another way of like a survival strategy that allows, allows you not just to survive, but maybe to thrive in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, it was so clear that from the time she was born, she had no one looking out for her, you know, like not even her mom, unfortunately, like she was sent to work for that guy who she called Mr. Daddy or Mm -hmm. whatever. That's red flag central. And the reason, yeah, the reason they married her off at 13 was, I guess, so that he would stop bothering her. Yeah. To keep her, keep a, like, keep a different predator away. Like, and it's just like, that's horrible to think about, but that's how things were. And yeah, the, like this idea, this like little girl, like, cause she was like basically like, sleeping on like, in the area where like the dog would be and those kind of things. And that's where she came from and was able to kind of construct this other life for herself and then construct a life for like all, all of her kids too. And to think to go from that to be living in basically this fancy basically almost a castle yeah like oh my goodness she became so so rich so I never heard of her which I can't believe until I was studying abroad in Paris in college I literally I mean I'm sure I heard her name once or twice but I had no idea who she was until I went to Paris because she's like revered in Paris Mm -hmm. so for our listeners the reason why she went to Paris she just got offered a job in a stage show because she start, she kind of was moving up the ranks from vaudeville to Broadway. But, you know, there's a quote in the book from one of the people who used to perform with her on uh, Broadway saying someone had asked that person, did the white audience members hit on you? And they were like, they had no way to access us because we were blocked from interacting with them, mm-hmm. which is so insane because, you know, segregation was in full swing all over the U.S., So she gets this job in this stage play in Paris and she moves to Paris and there isn't segregation there. And she just feels like she can finally sort of fully exist in the world and go into whatever businesses she wants to go into. You know, black men and white women are getting together. White men and black women are getting together. Everybody is just, you know, there are no barriers really. But I think the thing is in France at the time, there was this sort of fetishization that is kind of uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. I think that that is something that you can't like really ignore with going out there. And I think we can still maybe connect it to to even today how um, a lot of times people are like, how can there be racism? We love we love Beyonce. But it's like, we do love Beyonce. And a lot of people do love Beyonce. But like, do you love black people or do you love black culture? Or do you love elements of black culture that are, you are maybe fetishized and like sensationalized? And I think we can kind of start thinking of, even though Paris was super libertary for her, not just her, but like lots of other black people, I believe like Paul Robeson, for example, spent time over there and like lots of other like black writers, like, you know, James Baldwin, all of these people, but also too, this idea of fetishization and like this idea of like, the exotic or even like the, her very famous dance is like, you know, the dance of the savage. So this mm-hmm. idea of that, maybe I think people were maybe titillated by that. And also maybe also the dichotomy of her being this like kind of very intelligent woman. And also someone that is um, that was seen as a dichotomy back then of that she could be this, this intelligent woman, but also be black and like be able to do this like dance that was maybe supposed to be like savage or more low or more like um, tribal even, even though she wasn't any of those things really. Yeah. It was really, it was interesting because she 
even did a minstrel show for mm-hmm. a period in New she York. Did blackface, yeah, she, she did, did blackface. blackface, yeah, so, which was not uncommon uh, for black performers to do that. Maybe a little bit earlier than that, but it was not uncommon for there to be blackface shows where there were black actors doing blackface yeah and so that is that is something that is like part of this kind of legacy of blackface and minstrel shows and like american american performances too if you think about it which i think is one of the reasons why i think it's like so fascinating it's like minstrelly and vaudeville and stuff it's not like just america um, like created all of these things but a lot of the things that happened and were innovated on and like, you know, were, were kind of things that originated in America and continued on to this day. I mean, like all, we would not have stand up comedy in the format that we have now, if we didn't have things like vaudeville starting, Mm -hmm. like, it's like, it's fascinating to think of things that have maybe were like, and they come from all different areas, but America has a way of like swirling them together and making it its own thing. And it's like, so interesting to me to think of that legacy yeah yeah so also when she was in Paris she did face a lot of racism still obviously and because it was the 1920s and some of the one of the things that I really that really caught my attention was the way that they treated her when she performed topless versus the way they treated white dancers who performed topless. So when white women would perform topless, no one even talked about it. It was mm-hmm. not even an issue. It was just, well, this is France. This is what we do. And then when she did, it became this federal case. It was like yeah. the, there was this one incident where this guy, he was like a cop or something, and his girlfriend was perform it was a white woman who was performing in another show in Paris and she was really annoyed that the show Josephine was in was doing so well so she got her boyfriend to go to the show and say that all of the women in the chorus have to wear fabric between the sheer panels of their outfit and their skin Mm -hmm. so literally the cops made them cover themselves up more because the cop's girlfriend was a dancer who wasn't as good as her yeah it's wild it was oh my gosh there's so many yeah there's so many things like that I'm just oh it's really kind of incredible though to think though too of how many people maybe like tried to stick up for her or negotiate these things at the time too between Paris and the U.S. because it's like oh she never would have gotten the same kind of reception had she stayed like also in the United States I don't under like I don't even know what her life would have been like as um there had she not and it does make sense then why she had such an allegiance of her allegiance to France and like to be able to be like a a freaking spy like that seems so that seems like made up like (laughs) but it's not and she she didn't have necessarily the same success in the rest of Europe so right before World War II is about to break out she goes on this European tour and Oh, I have to read out what she brought with her. She brought, it says, they took along the six Baker boys, a white band, Pepito's mother, his cousin Zito, a secretary, a chauffeur, a maid, a typewriter, two dogs, 196 pairs of shoes, assorted dresses and furs, 64 kilos of face powder, and 30,000 publicity shots. And this is in January 1928. Like, who had that much money in 1928? I love it. It's amazing. But so... (laughs) 
she she faced a lot of backlash. She was in Croatia and they were really annoyed and they thought that her show was indecent and they threw things at her and screamed long live Croatian culture. Mm-hmm. And then in Austria, obviously Hitler was starting to come into power in Germany and people were reading Mein Kampf and it created a real backlash for her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it kind of makes you understand even more why she had such an allegiance to the French resistance because she was directly affected at a personal level by Hitler's propaganda. Oh my gosh, I know. All of that, it's so funny the way my mind works because all of that is so important, but I'm like stuck on all these other, I have all these passages underlined of like all the stuff she would buy or bring places when she moved house and went to the south of France, um, like just kind of prior to World War II, the list is like armor from the Middle Ages, the gold piano, Japanese ivories, Marie Antoinette's bed, feather <laughs> pillows, furniture and linens, everything piled into vans, especially um, linens, feminine instinct, love for whiteness, a wish for bourgeoisie security. She's always ecstatic about towels and sheets. Like all of oh, their things like that, like interspersed, realizing that like this woman was extra about everything she did all the time. Like, I don't think that maybe that's like, it's, I don't think she could have helped it. Like even the very beginning, there's like a part where she's like inconsolable because all of her goldfish had died and all of her goldfish had died because she put them in a freaking bidet. Like that's like, (laughs) and like, that's what she thought that they they were going to like live in this bidet, I guess. And then like one of her friends had to comfort her. It seems like that is just the way she was all the time with all of her things. (laughs) Oh my goodness. She was so like eccentric. She was a true eccentric diva with her yeah. exotic animals. She had a cheetah that she took around yeah. with her. How did the cheetah not maul anyone? I've done so of much research. It did. <laughs> it did, right? I feel like we like now know. Um, it's funny because I remember Tiger King was a thing that was happening and everyone was watching Tiger King and I watched it and I was like what like y'all didn't know anyone who had a backyard tiger and people were like my boyfriend was like what are you talking about and I'm like I'm from South Florida at least at least a friend of a friend someone would have like a big cat or something that was just a thing that people have randomly it's terrible and then we looked it up it's like yeah all of the all of the unlicensed tigers there's a high concentration of them they're all in freaking Florida and but on the floor yeah people will just have like I remember there's a there was a flea market in like a town over where went to college and they had they had like leopards it's like and that was just like a thing that they like i how did they not kill everyone i feel like maybe like they maybe they did like i feel like i feel like it's like not a safe and i'm not condone like it's not good we've we've all seen tiger king we should know like don't have a freaking big cat but like yeah i think that's a thing that people just roll this dice and they roll the dice and they roll the dice for a long time and i bet after a while this um these cats they have to be given away or put somewhere else like you can't have them forever and so yeah it's probably not good to be hoarding animals yeah there's like mention though in this book about like sometimes it's just like and they brought pay- Ages of the parakeets and they had this it's like well, how many animals did you have josephine and it's like it was a lot like yeah. tortoise, a tortoise like all sorts of things yeah she would bring the cheetah to the movies with her yes yes <laughs> like what the hell obviously this was a time before personal injury lawsuits that's true yeah, yeah. so when she returned to um 
the U.S., she also had a pretty frosty reception from the critics mm-hmm. and just from our kind of puritanical culture in general. She didn't get good reviews from her performances, and it kind of was, I like, when you read the reviews, there is clearly a hint of jealousy, like, and definitely, obviously, racism of who does she think she is going over to France and becoming this global celebrity when we didn't approve of her first kind of thing. So she just went back to France. She was like, screw you guys. Yeah, I'm out. Yeah, Yeah, you can't blame her. And she, I really liked this quote. She said it made her angry to be used as a banner waved by some in the name of free expression and by others in defense of public morality. And then she said, what did I care about Argentine politics? Because I guess that's what it was going on in Argentina when she was performing there. So she really obviously was so annoyed by the way that she became this cultural token of what's right and what's wrong when she's just like, dude, I'm just a singer, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying to like, let me dance. Yeah. And I, I feel like that becomes a thing though, with, with these um, women that are, um, are divas in some ways that they do become that. Right. Cause I mean, what are they doing with like, I don't think like any of the dancing that like Jennifer Lopez or Shakira were doing was really that much different than some of the dancing they've ever done before and like have done before pretty publicly, but because of the certain time period, I think that there was such a strong reaction and then that happens. And I think, I don't know. I wonder if it was an election year, if like um, if the WAP video would have been such a big deal. Like, I wonder if we were in like kind of quarantine times now, if people um, wouldn't have, would have latched onto it in quite the same way. Like in, right. as far as like, um, as far as like negatively. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're so right, because part of the problem is, and I do this all the time, because how do you not, but part of the problem is the people who do agree with Cardi B or Josephine Baker end up amplifying the people who don't, because we're so annoyed that people are taking issue with it that we, like, retweet them, and we'll be like, oh my god, I can't believe this conservative congressman said this about (laughs) Cardi B, or I can't believe Ben Shapiro said this, and then someone makes a remix of Ben Shapiro rapping the lyrics of WAP, and now he's the one going viral instead of Cardi and it's like yeah it's definitely the the controversy around it takes on a life of its own it's so yeah it's it's really really fascinating and I just oh my god yeah and then it's also interesting that later on in life she kind of becomes a little bit more like square in some ways like Jean-Claude recounts that like there's like a video or something on the TV that's her doing the dance and she like doesn't want to watch it and she doesn't want her kids to watch it. She's like very a little bit controlling. John Claude talks about it and like yeah, about how she was like really concerned about what the kids wore and like those kind of things like later on in life. I thought that was really fascinating that maybe why maybe her attitude towards that changed. Yeah, even the whole the chapter is even called like my mom is tough on the kids and herself. It's like did she have regrets? Did she maybe just want better for them or different from them? Was it because she converted to um, Catholicism like later on in life? Like what that was it? Was crazy. As yeah, like what was Catholic, it? I'm like, yeah. oh, why are you becoming Catholic? <laughs> you need to run far, far away from this. <laughs> Who yeah, does like that? what? Like what was it? Was it guilt? Like what? Like um, and it's just like we don't really know. It's interesting that she, yeah. yeah. 
she's very inscrutable. It's hard to figure out what her motivation is for anything she does because, you know, she's not the most reliable narrator. And Jean-Claude is piecing these things together through, you know, second and third hand sources. So, yeah, it is hard to hard to say. But I was thinking it might be. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is the fact that she was so integral to the civil rights movement. She desegregated. Mm-hmm so many nightclubs just by saying I will not perform here in the U.S. at this club if you don't allow the uh, crowd to be integrated. And then still with that, she was still looked down on because of her dancing, because of they deemed it to be too overtly sexual. Like when she speaks at the Million Man March in 1973, she says, your grandfather and grandmother might know who I am, but they'll call me a devil. Just because of how puritanical America is in general. So maybe that's why. That could be yeah. why she thinking like I would have been this diplomat or something if I didn't have this scarlet letter which is so unfortunate because that's just the way like our society works yeah and I mean that's so true and we see it even on the way that certain things played out um played out in the civil rights movement it's like someone like um Rosa Parks being chosen to be this pivotal person um, within that moment when that was not the first person to like refuse to like get up their seat of the bus. A lot of people, a lot of people will know Rosa Parks' name and they'll know who Rosa Parks was, but they won't maybe necessarily know the name Claudette Colvin, for example, because she was, you know, a 15 year old who refused to get, um, who refused to get up for the bus and but that was not that was decided that that was not going to be the test case because Claudette Colvin was later on, you know, an unwed, an unwed mother. So there's a lot of things like colorism that play into that too. Claudette Colvin was like a, like a darker skinned, outspoken lady. Like, well, she was a kid, basically. It was another thing we think of. She was only 15 when this Mm -hmm. started to happen. Whereas Rosa Parks was already kind of working within the movement and, you know, a lighter skinned lady with all of this idea of respectability around her. So we have to kind of think about the way that maybe these things were still in place then and are still in place now. Like, who gets to be like the person? I remember um, when um, kind of more Me Too stuff things are happening. And now someone like a Megan Fox was saying that, like, I didn't feel comfortable speaking out you know, when that was starting to happen, because I knew because of my image and what was happening that they wouldn't, that maybe I wouldn't be taking it seriously. Maybe I might even be damaging to the movement. And it's like, that's so unfortunate and so wrong because her experiences are what happened. And, and like more and more things were coming out that, you know, back up everything that she was saying. So yeah, this idea of respectability is still is so relevant today that I hope I hope is changing and getting even yeah. someone like yeah someone like seeing Cardi B like talking to Joe Biden it's just like I don't think I'd ever see like the you know what I mean I don't even think I'd ever see the day you know of something yeah. like that happening yeah and it's so and it's and it's really is cool that people are challenging that because there are also like not just things with um, sexuality and you know what you choose to show not to show or reveal sexually but even things like there are class politics that start to come into that too. Like these, um, I noticed that there's like this criticism people are asking Alexandra Ocasio 
Cortez, oh, I can't wait until you go back to like being a bartender. And her response was really great. It's just like, first of all, there's nothing wrong with being a bartender. I learned a freaking lot that I could do to do my job now. And all of this, I credit to being a bartender. And also, if you if you want to just be a bartender, it's not not even just be a bartender. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing shameful about of working in a service industry. And like, there's nothing shameful about deciding to be a dancer like Josephine it's mind-boggling amazing that these things like we kind of can still talk about them because they're very relevant today Mm -hmm. we still have so many just pointless hierarchies that we impose on ourselves that we really don't need to and the funny thing about these sort of purity tests that we impose mostly on women obviously is that no one passes them. No one stands up to that kind of scrutiny when you actually put the magnifying glass up to them. For example, the other day after the Republican National Convention, when someone tweeted, we need more Melania's and fewer Cardi B's, and Cardi B tweeted that Melania has posed nude before. So it's like, obviously, there's nothing wrong with posing nude, but if you're going to impose these purity tests, the only person who's going to pass is going to be like, a robot you know everybody has been sexual in the past everybody has done this stuff whether it's public or private so it is just you know it's so frustrating that we continue to impose this on people yeah that's yeah that's a really good point too because it's like yeah and there's nothing wrong with melania having been a model and done like you know hot pictures because she's stunning like that's like like we have plenty of if you're a critic of you know trump's we have plenty of other things we can criti- criticize but yeah that's a really good point of thinking about thinking about this and it, but it is like really fascinating to think of it's going back to maybe your point and looking back at the book of like how like these white dancers were not criticized for being topless but she was whereas yeah. like you know someone like melania like i don't i doubt very much that um obama and michelle would have the like if if anything they've had like the most squeaky cleanest life in the world right like if if there were like pictures like that of michelle can you imagine what the field day would have been like You'd you never know, hear the end you of would it never yeah. hear the end of it i do not think that um barack obama would have been president like it would not have been the same thing it was like these these people became the test case for um having you know black people in the white in the white house cuz they were you know exemplary and like be squeaky clean people like to the bet like because I, I don't know there's not this is how we know that like this is also how we know like they like have a really happy marriage a hundred percent like we know that because someone would have found something by now at this point I know. Their, their scrutiny like if there was ever even like if either of them had looked at another person outside their marriage like a little too hard at any point we would have known about it and found out about it, um, which is like an interesting thing to 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 think about because like with someone like like Trump doesn't really like none of that matters. It's like a different yeah. we're in a different world now. And yeah. yeah, it's like we only as a society impose respectability politics on the people that we want to keep down. It's like Michelle Obama's biggest scandal was that she told kids to eat more vegetables, and that <laughs> and that turned into basically. For conservatives, it was on par with like a sex scandal, you know, it's like you just can't she just can't win. And then Melania gets to plagiarize her speeches (laughs) and pose nude and she's hailed as some sort of virgin queen. 
It's yeah. just crazy. And it's like you can you can critique the Obamas for things. Like I would like, yeah, I would I would say like, yeah, you could take um, you know, um President Obama to task for some of his policy making things, but it's like it also seemed like those things were critiqued just as harshly as like him wearing a tan suit. Like yeah. he wore a tan suit and everyone was like, What does it mean that he wore a tan suit? And I'm like, I feel like he's just a black man of a certain age. And it was like just very high, like high, like um, just like older black man wearing tan suit vibes. Like, like I bet he has a pair of those like leather sandals too that are really ugly that everyone's uncle wears. Like that's just like, oh my you know, God, it's leather sandals. Yeah, I I think yeah. he does. I he think he does. He's a yeah. yeah. He's a black man of a certain of a certain age. He probably listens to he probably listens to like um, gospel music on a Sunday morning. Like that's just like a thing yeah. that people do. I don't know. Like yeah, this is like it's so funny to think about. But that was that was seen as like what is going on. Like there was really multiple articles about that. This this tan suit. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's ridiculous it's, it's, and it's Trump is out here looking like a friggin' ball of cat hair every day <laughs> and we're just like yeah this is acceptable yeah he's very yeah but he's very he's a different breed he is yeah he's yeah yeah like in some ways unflappable and un uncritiquable because he yeah he's he's had his shame has been surgically removed at some point <laughs> absolutely so as we start to wrap up what are some things that you have learned from josephine's life that you're going to take forward from this research process and everything i think it's cool that she did so many things and allowed herself to be so many things because i think that's what i struggle with like a lot and i don't know maybe other women feel like this too especially that like finding your passion you should have like one defined passion but it's like it was more like she like followed like her bliss and like kind of figured out like all of these things and she kind of owned i think in a lot of ways that she was good at multiple things i think that's so cool like there's little asides like like things about like a dress and like Jean-Claude happens to mention like oh I um oh I'm pretty sure she designed it like and she just like would sketch and like make her dress and it's like that's amazing to yeah to maybe just like keep doing yeah that's so that's a big thing for me too I think just like following these passions where they lead and being like somewhat unapologetic about it yeah yeah amazing yeah, she was. She was good at dancing, singing. I didn't know she was good at singing. Her singing voice is so good. She was good at writing. She was good, like you said, at designing dresses. It's crazy. She was like the original millennial multi-hyphenate. And yeah. it's just another way she was ahead of her time, I guess. Because most entertainers at that time especially most female entertainers if someone from the french resistance came up to them and was like hey will you be a spy they would be like i'm an actress no (laughs) you know but she just was like i mean yeah why would i not be a spy that's absurd of course i'll be a spy so yeah that is really cool and she was just so i think she seemed and i'm sure she had her moments of insecurity but I think she seems like she was so confident and she just went for it with everything because for her, I mean, she got out of so many crappy situations in her youth just through tenacity and grit that she must have, I guess you, you do start to feel like you can do anything, you know, like she got out of a pretty crappy family situation. She got out of that terrible Mr. Daddy situation. I know. She got out of two marriages without even having to file for divorce. (laughs) She (laughs) just just kept, kept on, kept on keeping on. (laughs) Yeah. She got out of America at a time when, I mean, just the fact that she was touring the world in the 1920s is Mm -hmm. absurd. I just, yeah. 
if I could have been anyone in history, I feel like I would want to be like a vaudevillian entertainer touring the world in the 1920s. Yeah, it it just seems so ex- like so exciting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At any moment, and these are just like all the people that were just to know all these like legends. Oh, so incredible. Yeah. I also want to start a campaign to get her in like history books because I think it's so messed up that so many people don't know who she is. Yeah, that's really true. Yeah, that is really, really true. Yeah, she is maybe underappreciated in so many ways. Yeah, she should be like, there should be portraits of her hanging in museums and stuff. Because I mean, the the things that she contributed, like the intelligence that she gathered as a spy probably helped win World War Two. Yeah, that like that alone. And, uh, and I think there are some like, I think there's been certain people are allowed to like kind of maybe um, and have been able to recontextual be recontextualized like Hedy, Hedy Lamar, for example, doing all of the research that Hedy Lamar did. Yeah. Um, and that being like the reason why we have Wi-Fi like is mind blowing to me. And that that's something that I think people talk about more and more. So hopefully these things will happen. I think they are happening. So that's ex- it's exciting for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's not fair that so many people she hung out with are household names like Ernest Hemingway and Pablo Picasso and Gertrude Stein. And she was so a part of that moment, that sort of artsy bohemian 1920s moment. She was the biggest star of that moment. And she is just like not quite as well known in the U.S. as those other people are. Yeah, it is so cool to see some of the people doing like tributes to her, though, too, because I saw like I didn't I didn't realize until like kind of looking up for this podcast that Beyonce has a costume that's like a direct takeoff and like homage to that with the banana skirt and everything and it's like oh that's so cool yeah yeah when you watch old videos of her dancing you can really see how she's influenced Beyonce's dance style it's really really like awesome yeah it's so interesting it's really cool and Rihanna when she got um that one award and she wore that sheer dress oh yes yeah, and that was inspired by Josephine Baker, and she said something about it, and I saw this thing on Twitter where um, someone responded to her tweet and was like, yeah, but Josephine Baker didn't get her boobs out, and someone else responded like, and was like, are you joking? Uh, that was, like, kind of her thing. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. so funny, because it makes me think of, like, my mom with, like, provocative dancing and even, like, even like outfits and what starlets would wear. I think, because that's something my mom would say. My mom would be like... Yeah, but they were like, you know, girls in Europe that would just dance naked all the time. That was just like a thing. Like, it's not a big deal. Like, yeah. And I thought that was so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I went to the Moulin Rouge show in Paris a few, like a year ago, and I had never gone before because I just thought it was going to be really cheesy and corny and touristy. And it was, but it was <laughs> amazing. And it was hilarious because all of them have their boobs out, but it's like the most asexual thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> they're literally they're doing like the shop right can can and they're <laughs> just out. And it's just so funny because you're like, this is like something out of Disney World, but everyone's topless. That's amazing. Yeah, I would love to see that one day when we can travel again. I've made a promise to myself that I'm gonna like, go, like I'm gonna go. I want to go to. I've like I've been to places in Europe, but I've actually never been to France. And I'm like, I need to go. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. it's the best. I love France. It's so good. It's like French people are really rude, but you like respect them because you're like, yeah, your culture's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> better. Like I get why you're looking down on me right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a yeah. 
I, yeah, I'm, I'm dying to go. Well, I'm dying to go anywhere at this point. Let's be honest. Yeah, <laughs> little like Oklahoma at this point, I'd take yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so Francesca, what are some of your favorite diva tendencies for your own self? I realized because I was thinking about this before this podcast that I probably don't maybe think about myself as a diva, but then I was like, no, but I totally am. I realized because I am like a perfectionist to a fault, um, which I think is probably like it ends up being a good thing. But then like if I'm I am harder on my because I'm harder on myself than I am of other people. But I realize I have very high exacting standards a lot. And I'm also like very, very sensitive, which I think ends up being really good for like the creative type of work that I want to do. But also like I probably am also a lot to deal with all the time, which is I think a very diva tendency. And I think that I can be very like unapologetic. Um, I don't think I'm, that I'm very, very aggressive or brash, but I think I can be very unapologetic. Um, which is maybe sometimes off-putting to other people, but I, I'm like, I'm like, I like, I like that about myself. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Perfectionism is such a good diva trait that I never thought of until you just said it. It's so true. That's like why everyone gets mad at Beyonce. I mean, not the only reason because people are <laughs> just so nasty about her in general, but I feel like she's everything she puts out now is embracing her perfectionism and I love it like watching homecoming and everything you just see her reveling in it and it's so good yeah and I think that yeah that kind of hyper focus too in some things can be like a diva tendency and I'm also just like I know that like I don't believe in I know this is controversial to talk to people about people but I don't believe in astrology at all like I was I literally gonna ask you if you're a Virgo <laughs> I'm not a Virgo and I don't think astrology is real. However, I am a Taurus and everyone goes, Oh, okay. That makes, that makes sense. Why you don't believe in astrology. And I'm like, I don't what, but like apparently yeah. Taurus like, like very sensual things. Like I like to be cozy. So I like things to be kind of like a particular like sensory way. And yeah. I can get, and I can get very picky about that. Like I get very picky about things, which would probably manifest sometimes as like not just diva behavior, but maybe like low key, like a little bit of a terroristic tyrant behavior but I try <laughs> you know what I mean like if I try and keep it like under wraps like um I because I think I get all of that from like my mom and the way that she's very very much like a sensory person and perfectionist but I think I also get my dad is like an incredibly passionate person and we both have the same bad trait which is like I have like a very like um just like very, very, like a terrible temper, but like most people don't know that about me. I think about me as an angry person because I work really hard. I would so, like, never so think like, you had a temper. There's like, it's like a barely, it's like a constantly simmering, like barely suppressed rage. But like I tend to, cause I know I don't want to ever take that out on someone else. But I think like that, like kind of, I think it's just like passionate energy is like also maybe a thing that like, I think it was like maybe being like a diva is tendency because I try not to like let that blow because it's like really like not fair and something to work on. Um, but yeah, but like, yeah, I have like a like like a low simmering rage like all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so you're a major diva. It's perfect. Yeah. Kind of, kind of am. And I didn't think I was, but then I kind of looked at it and listening to the podcast and thinking about it, it's like, yeah, kind of am. It's not a bad thing to be yeah, a diva. 
It's yeah. not a bad thing. It's a great thing. And it's just something that, you know, the patriarchy has conditioned us to think of as bad. But it's actually awesome. And I'm a Taurus moon, so I totally relate to Perfect. your being kind of anal about your surroundings and stuff like that. I think maybe that's why I get really mad when people chew loudly. And oh. now I'm wondering if it's my Taurus moon. Oh, I don't know. Since, since all of that's made up, I'm going to say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is, yeah. Right. I don't know where the, yeah, where the, where the, I, yeah. I, I just recently learned that there's like a moon and like a, 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 there's like a sun and a moon and some other thing that's hidden. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's a definitely a slippery slope because once you start getting into it, you start believing in it and it starts because it's such Oh, God. I mean, I'm just like, I could be using my brain for so many other things, but so much of this real estate is dedicated to astrology. <laughs> I feel like if it helps people, though, I'm not going to really actually criticize it too much because it seems like it helps people to understand who they are. And in the end, that can only be like a good thing because we're all just trying to figure out like who we are and like where we're coming from and all of these things. Like, and that's so complicated. So who knows, like all this like astrology stuff, maybe, maybe in, in a couple of years, I'll be like really into it or something. But I've always That's been a like, very hey. charitable way of, of looking yeah. at it. I don't know, like people believe in ghosts. I don't think those are real either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just, I'm like, it's fine. If it's like, I don't know. I just, I kind of wish they were be, make things more. I Then I could have people over. <laughs> wow, that's such a good point. Oh my God, a ghost. That would be such a good, like, comedy or short film if somebody is in lockdown and they have, they're like, I need friends over, so I'm gonna have a seance, and they start calling like all these famous people's ghosts to hang out with them. That would be. I just feel like I don't think like the famous people would come. Like, wouldn't the famous people be busy? Like it would just, it'd just be like some random person that died in like 1995 and like it wouldn't live. That's what I think I would get. Like not some like cool old historical ghost, but like someone who died in like 95. Yeah. And, it's like, and I'll be and like, you're like frozen in Janko jeans for all of eternity. Yeah. It's like, it's, and they'll be like, oh yeah, I see like tube tops are back. What's up with that? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I can't help you. Okay. Thank you so much, Francesca, for coming on Diva Behavior. It was such a great conversation. I hope all the listeners will take the spirit of Josephine Baker with them wherever they go. Yeah. Yeah. Like wear some bananas, like do a dance. Also like stand up for your rights too. And realize that you can do all of that together. I think that's so cool. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. Yeah. And spy on people. That's another big one. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Spy. Yeah. Spy on people. Maybe like boyfriends, ex-boyfriends. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Some people think Diva's a bitch. I never said that. Diva behavior. Great gowns, beautiful gowns. Of course, I don't trust you. Diva behavior, the podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.